Welcome everyone to this uh, talk. So today's speaker is uh, Hugh Yoon Hao, and he's the founder of Nuts Technology and a company working on applications of security and cryptography. And in fact, today's talk will be on about encrypting uh, user data in transit and at rest. So thank you to the speaker and let's see. Hi, um, let me just start this slide. So we're gonna go through this uh, very quickly today. Um, we're gonna cover structured cryptography. And this is a little bit about myself. I, I used to develop on Wall Street for trading systems and then I became a, a trader on Wall Street. And now I'm, uh, now I'm playing uh, with Nuts Technologies to, uh, to get some more privacy for everybody. Anyway, here we go. Today, we'll cover Nuts Technologies and what we do. Uh, primarily, this is the agenda. We'll define structured cryptography, what it means. Then we'll go through the technology, the origins of the technology and the problem space that it solves. And then anecdotal stories behind it. Um, it's a little bit backwards, but I wanted to make sure that we hit the technology hard and fast and right from the beginning, and then we'll leave the um, Q&A for, for the end. I'm trying to condense this down to a 35 to 40 minute level, and uh, we'll see how it goes. We define structure cryptography as a method of creating modular data structures, which allow control disclosures by means of decryption dependent pathways. It sounds like a mouthful, and it is, but we're gonna to try to cover the technology in some detail and give you the basic idea of what this actually means. So with structured cryptography, why do we wanna use it? Why do we need it? Well, the central theme of structured cryptography is that we're using cryptographic security and not programmatic security. So that puts the emphasis on securing things just by using cryptographic data. Primarily, we're talking about keys and a lot of them. And we're also going to create a framework where it's not dependent on any one cipher and it'll be cipher agnostic. By doing this, we're gonna see that these modular structures become building blocks for uh, creating very, very customizable portable security for data. We're gonna cover the technology, which comes in three parts, SDFT, NUTS and the NUTS ecosystem. Structured data folding with transmutations is a secure messaging protocol and we're gonna go over the essence of how it works. When we talk about the state of data, there's a puzzling dichotomy that presents itself. We know about data in transit, we know about data at rest, and the security of the data in those two modes. Well, how does NUTS approach this? How do we put this together in a cohesive way that doesn't create these separate avenues and separate fields of specialty, nor different ways of thinking about it? Let's take a look at data in transit uh, done in a typical conventional manner. We have structured data here in the form of a address card. And first we have to transform the data and uh, do any kind of serializations compressions, uh, encodings, uh, encryptions, whatever you wanna do, turn it into a bit string, and then we start physically transmitting the data. Once we receive the data, um, we get this bit string again, and then we must undo 
whatever we've done to the data in exactly the right way, in exactly the backwards way with the right settings in order to uh, recover the original structured data. So let's break this process down. We've done some data transformation functions. We may have put in some applied cryptographic functions to create that bit string. Now, our questions that we had was, can we actually normalize these two types of transformative functions on data, which is data transformation and applied cryptographic functions? And can we normalize it and put it into a framework where they could coexist and interoperate in a very, very uh, modular way and um, transparent way? We begin by normalizing data transformation functions and applied cryptographic functions into what we call transmutation commands. So the whole idea here is take a typical data operation. If we list them all down, uh, now this isn't a complete list, but it's it's a large subset of them. And um, we can classify them, uh, define an operation, and then create a transmutation executable command. Um, and this is how it typically looks. Now, each of these transmutation commands actually has optional arguments. There's a lot of default values that, that I've put in for it, but with the arguments, you could actually access you know, the, the 10 flavors of AES that we have commonly out there, uh, the three different key sizes that we have, even block um, sizes and blocking characters. Now, just take a quick look at something like SCIFER AES or even, um, if you have to see this digital signature for uh, the using RSA keys, um, by being able to normalize commands like this, one of the one of the definite benefits that we get out of it is the ability to say, hey, you know, this is an AES two fifty six operation. I could expect that type of key and key structure. And the other flip side of that is that if I don't, if I'm not input that key or key structure, I can actually easily create it. So I'll leave you with that. The next step is to create a framework where these transmutation commands can actually um, interoperate in a very smooth fashion. And we could put a structure around it. Um, so the way we take a look at transmutations is we do this analysis where we take a look at them from a forward mode and then a reversing mode. And as you can tell from the previous table, uh, many of those functions have both a, um, a forward and a reverse mode. Now the ones that we don't have, there can be equivalences and certain ones you just can't have reverse mode, such as um, you know direct hashing or um, lossy compressions. Anyway, with this framework, what we're able to do is now redefine sort of how a message is actually uh, created. Now that we've introduced transmutations and the concept of forward and reverse transmutations, let's take a look at data in transit using SDFT um, as the methodology. In this case, with the same structured data, and we create now something called the transmutation audit record, which is just a series of ordered transmutation commands. We name it. 
we call it a tar A2. And in this case, we follow these transmutation commands on the structured data, and we call this command the ravel or fold data command. And we fold the data along with the tar and transmit it. When that message is received on the other end, we know that it is composed of tar A2 plus the folded data. So the first step is to unravel that in level layer one and unfold a tar and basically out pops the instructions that created the folded data. And we simply reverse the commands on that data and out pops the structured data. So the next step to kind of think about data in transit and data at rest slightly differently is to think of data at rest as Alice sending a message to herself for some time in the future. Now, it may not be to herself, it could be to other people, so it could be shared, so Alice could be sending to Bob at a later time in the future. But by just looking at it in that way, we can easily see that messaging now versus later, there's really not that much of a difference except time. And this is how we start thinking about SDFT and transmutations as a way of storing data at rest um, that is really not that much different from you know, uh, sending a message or a secure message down the pipeline at time t. So here's a simple comparison of a data at rest scenario where we'll take, uh, this is using Python, We'll take this data construct, a data structure, a dictionary, and uh, use these comments as a guide and perform the manual data folding. We'll, we'll actually fold this data and write it to disk. Now, um, to read it, we have to undo it, basically reverse the entire process, and then out pops the um, data string again, or the data structure. When we do it with SDFT, you notice that the comments almost translate right into a transmutation audit record. And this purple area where we're raveling the data structure and then unraveling the data structure are fairly static. And the only variable in this case would be this test A70 transmutation audit record name right here. Um, and we could vary the transmutation audit record on the fly or just change it whenever we want and just change it by name if we wanted to or just feed it directly in. And you could see that on the unravel, there is no reference to the tar because it's already embedded in the mydata.json. So you could tell that the coding itself is much more elegant and we only have to do this in the forward mode. The reverse mode is implied and guaranteed. So we save on errors and you need a lot less knowledge to code transmutation audit records than to actually do the do perform the actual uh, code. The benefits of SDFT are fairly clear in this brief introduction. The concept of folding the message and the instructions gives it a completeness uh, at a very granular level. We have also designed the protocol to be used for both at rest and in transit. And the transmutation audit record allows for automated key generation 
and also allows easier to uh, makes it easier to program with much less errors since you're only doing half the work. It requires a lot less knowledge about applied cryptographic functions and it allows us to use the knowledge properly by creating very experienced and expert TARs. Also, STFT allows for incremental eventual upgrades because since the instructions are embedded in, within the message, uh, you could upgrade them slowly and they are backwards compatible. And that's what we mean by time compatibility, that both backwards compatibility and future compatibility are built in in this cipher agnostic framework, which means that it implies that we are gonna be post-quantum ready when those new ciphers are out from the NIST um, post-quantum race. Also, the last thing that I'd like to point out that it presents the concept of a dynamic protocol, meaning that if we're doing a session, I can actually change TARs on a per message basis based upon the sensitivity of the message. And that is something that um, is very, very rare to find and not so easily done. Now we'll move on to the second layer of the technology called encrypted user data transit and storage, which is NUTS. And its product is a NUT container, a secure data container. Encrypted user data transit and storage describes a method of creating data with special characteristics and technically, it is a complex data type partially made of SDFT messages. So you could imagine a JSON structure where parts of it are SDFT encoded messages all in base64 encodings. Now, that's a fairly uh, ugly looking structure, but it is actually kind of elegant when you actually see it. One of the main characteristics that we've put in is called the NUT ID. It's a very large number, 512-bit SHA-2 hash, made from various entropy material within your computing environment. So we consider it a practically unique ID, which is kind of a more accurate uh, representation than a UUID or GUID, um, and it is much bigger. Unlike a UUID or GUID, we consider this a universal namespace and is purely anonymous because we don't put in any kind of structured um, naming convention like a UUID or a GUID. And then obviously it could be independently generated in any manner possible in your computer alone, in your CPU and environment alone. The NUTS technology allows you to create a NUT data structure. And it has, now within a NUT structure, it's not just one data structure. There is the modular data structure we call a lock node that a NUT is made of. So a NUT can be minimally made of one lock node, but interesting things start to happen once you have several of these lock nodes strung up together in various ways. Anyway, this is a single lock node, and you could tell that there are several components, but here's the payload, and that's the item that you want to protect and keep secret, but there is essentially three layers of security and then this giant keyhole that we have. And we'll go into the interplay of the security mechanisms in the next slide. Let's take a peek inside the lock node at the various layers of security that protect the payload within it. 
I call this technique structured cryptographic programming. We start with a universal keyhole that supports any number of keys of any type, so symmetric, asymmetric, and passphrase. Automatically, right there, if we use the keys right, we could actually generate multi-factor authentication for the payload, for one lock node payload. Then the next step is what do, what do you do with the keys? Well, the keys interact within this variable lock scenario. And this variable lock mechanism is actually a transmutation. It's described by a single transmutation command that has these right now, these five different methods of locking, or locks and locks and secret sharing locks. And they use the keys in the right combinations to get you access into the payload. Now we have this, other layer of access control called the stratum access control, which works with universal keyholes and the variable locks of multiple lock nodes. So it really comes into play when you have more than one lock node strung up together. The last layer is what we call our fine-grade access control, which provides role-based cryptographic access control at this fine granularity where we can do insider threat protection by using this verify only capability. And this is all done with cryptographic keys. And this is very, very unique. So now that we know what the innards of a lock node looks like and the various layers of security that's integrated into it, um, we could take a look at what a lock graph looks like. And technically a nut is a lock graph which is a directed acyclic graph. And a simple one that's linear may look like this, where you have a string of seven lock nodes strung up together. These are cryptographically linked, meaning that this link is a, it gives a lock ID, which, which means each lock node has a nut ID associated with it. And so with that unique PUID number, it would link it with a cryptographic key right into the next keyhole. So the universal keyhole of this lock node accepts a key that's revealed by opening up this particular lock node successfully. And if you open up this one successfully, you'll open up the next one and so on and so forth until you get to the payload. So there's a lot of decrypting going on um, in this nut. And, but, the, but the emphasis here is on the structured nature of this this controlled disclosure of different lock nodes as you go deeper and deeper. Now we could control this process with the revealing of the proper keys based upon what somebody has put into here. Now this modularness, and this comes, goes back to structured cryptography, and that is, this is what we mean by it, is within the nut, we could use these lock nodes to compose these various um, lock node combinations for different security scenarios. And all of these are possible. They're not, they're not uh, hard at all. They don't require programming and that is the key. And inside the lock node, inside the nut, all of these things are controlled. And basically they're a complex arrangement of folded messages, folded SDFT messages. So when we coined the term data as the endpoint, what we meant is you put data into a nut and you lock this thing, that's what it is. It, it, it travels with it everywhere. It's cryptographically um, controlled in terms of access control. It's portable. 
It has universal protection in any environment, uh, internal, external, hostile, friendly. It comes with its own namespace, meaning that a NUT ID is pretty much universal and kind of kind of unique. And then you could also have other lock nodes within the NUT that carries event logs of what's going on with the NUT, who touched it, uh, what happened to it, and also revision history can travel with the payload. And that's a fairly kind of it's a different way to look at data, and um, it's it's almost like a holistic treatment of data. Now, the nice thing about the metadata here is that it's actionable because, first of all, it's trustworthy, and it's basically immutable. It's immutable because we could tell if it's if it doesn't authenticate, you don't want to act on it. Now, you may say, hey, you know, what's the big deal about actionable metadata? Well, remember that we actually have a NUT ID that uniquely identifies or practically uniquely identifies this nut in any namespace. Now we could call it anything else we want in the metadata, but we'll always have something unique to reference it by. That means no more dupe names, name file names or path names. Um, you'll always have a way to identify this thing. Now we'll cover the third layer of the technology on the nuts ecosystem. Basically, this ecosystem primarily operates on nuts, and therefore it operates on secure data. So everything that has a, that's in a nut has a nut ID. So everything is addressable in a universal way, which is kind of weird to think about it. Not many systems are built this way. And the security is baked in at the lowest levels, and we've seen this with the SDFT layer that you're actually creating NUT containers using SDFT messages, which is kind of a weird concept. And because of this, the security percolates throughout the ecosystem, kind of in a fractal way. And um, you also get the benefit of the NUT security. So this is when we start using data structures uh, in a structured security mode rather than creating new applications to do customized security. So how do we do this? Well, so we need to, we use nuts to store secrets. And let's say we create an address book in nuts. So one address per nut. And then, you know, if I have a, a fairly large address book, it may be 20, you know, let's say 200 nuts. So what? And not only can I put address in there, but I could put passwords, I could put certificates, I could put other nuts keys that I need to open other nuts. Um, isn't this thing called enterprise key management? And PKI is one of the key problems in cryptography and applied cryptography, that we don't have a very good way to secure the keys that keep our data secure. So the nutbook uh, is what we call a PIM on steroids. And a user can create keys as needed. There's no certificate authority required. And you could also create very, very intricate, very solid personal relationship management systems using the notebook so that I could communicate with somebody in a very secure way, in a very point-to-point -point way, and do this on the fly. So we have this thing called a notebook. It is a key management system that is 
out of this world. You haven't seen anything like this before. So this is what the Nuts ecosystem kind of looks like. So it is uh, every computing device will have um, in the beginning four core applications called uh, Nutbook, Nut Server, the Mior Server, and the Nut Browser. We don't really have time to go over every one of these, but the Mior basically is a modular I.O. repository. Um, you could almost think of it as a Nut-based app, uh, you know, your private app repository. And then a Nut Browser kind of looks like a, your, your file browser. And the Nut Server is the main uh, application that is responsible for indexing nuts, for talking to other nut servers, and synchronization and replication of nuts across systems. Um, the inspiration for this came from looking at data uh, and seeing, hey, when is data really um, useful? Data is useful when it's organized. And we looked at DNA and said, DNA actually organizes data in a organic fashion. So DNA is a, is a great data model. It is the oldest working data model that we know of. It, it is self-evident. It's, as, it's about as perfect as we can get it. Self-healing, self-replicating, self-perpetuating. It uses the environmental resources that it has to, to help continue its uh, propagation. Uh, and it's absolutely accurate. And so we said, what can we learn from this, right? So here's a technical characteristics DNA that we found. It has identification. We know that DNA IDs, uh, DNA fingerprints, it has complete data. So, you know, you don't have a little piece of uh, DNA sitting at the fingertip and another piece sitting at, you know, your hip bone and uh, they have to come together to do anything new. That, that would be disastrous. We wouldn't be alive. Um, it has a sense of history. So when geneticists and DNA uh, biomolecular people uh, rip into DNA, they could tell you some pieces look like fish heads, other pieces look like, you know, lizard tails, whatever. And then we have uh, protection. DNA knows how to protect itself. It creates cell walls. It creates proteins. It creates, you know, uh, other mechanisms to destroy and protect itself and replicate and, re re and heal or It'll die if it's too sick and it'll replace itself, right? Positional functionality. We mentioned this with the lactones. Um, you know, at some point, you had a stem cell that became, you know, a toe cell versus a brain cell. Well, what is that called? It's called um, differentiation, cell cellular differentiation. So we said, you know, lactones, right? So lactone is a is a is a singular data structure that based upon where it is, it'll act differently. And this is a, you know, your body is a weird mix of centralized, decentralized and distributed com computations on an organic scale. So we decided, hey, you know what? Let's, let's look at the stuff that works for us automatically, autonomic processes, right? And when you look at autonomic processes, they're very, very deeply distributed and decentralized. So what, what we like to think about it is, think the paper cut and the healing process, right? So that means um, if, you, if you cut your fingertip on a paper cut, is it really your brain telling it to heal itself or is it the local cells because of the release of certain chemicals from that cut 
the local cells decide to replicate itself and repair or replace those skin cells that have been cut. And DNA from a privacy point of view is that at a macro level, you know, your thoughts are private. And why is that? You know, we, so we, we've, we figured that privacy seems to be the natural state of being human. And we coined the term natural data privacy. And if you take a look at our current digital world, the way it is advertised, it is not natural. Absolutely not. So for my thoughts to be conveyed to you, um, I have to consciously make a decision to enunciate them or write them down or, you know, uh, mime, mime it out. But otherwise, they stay private. So in this way, data is the endpoint. A nut is the endpoint. And now we go to what does it solve? What problems does it solve? So the problem space of nuts is very large. Um, we've shown that this is privacy by design, almost by definition, and it's privacy by default, and it's for everybody because we created this so that your average user can use it individually uh, for free. Now, we've shown you how a nut using the lock node has fine-grained access control cryptographically built in at the data layer. And we do this by using structured security concepts that we've created. And by doing this, we created a notebook that acts as a universal key management system. Um, and because it's an individual nuts, it's about as robust as you're gonna get. And um, you know, nuts is all about sharing documents. That's exemplified by the universal keyhole where it could hold any types of keys, any number of them that is designed for massive amounts of sharing going on by different participants. And you know, if you're gonna send an attachment by email, well, now if you send an email attachment of a nut, that's intrinsically secure and it's basically a JSON file. So there is no programs, there's no viruses in there. If you trust that person, you actually have the key you could authenticate into it and hopefully you trust that person to not send you a virus through a NUT. Then you have the data management aspect of NUTs where the ecosystem using NUT servers does replication and synchronization and it actually does conflict-free replicated data type supports of any kind practically. So we will do all of that automatically because of the concept and the structure of the NUT itself. This is truly a decentralized and distributed environment, and it's very resilient, very recoverable, and resiliency and recovery is the key to ransomware recovery and then anti-tamper um, qualities. The centralization aspect of um, our computing world is kind of concerning these days because it almost seems to me from my days of using PDP-11s and other mainframes, that we're kind of moving backwards, uh, like salmon swimming upstream. Problem is it creates high value targets and it also creates the insider threat problems. Meaning when you create a high value target, you need administrators to secure it and to manage it. The administrators themselves are insider threats 
And not only that, if they are careless with their credentials and keys, they will prov provide um, easy entry for external threats to gain control of their systems and leak, leak, leak secrets. And then lastly, the other problem is that uh, we've been shrinking our security perimeter down from networks to devices. Now we want to get down to the data level and actually lock that sucker down. Well, to basically sum up the um, NUTS technology, we did show that it is practically, it's, it's universally applicable because everything is about data. Every little thing that we have runs on data and nothing is useful without the data. So we protect it. And we've built the security at such a low level and the security percolates and exhibits itself in the same type of characteristics at higher levels of the environment and ecosystem, the data security model within NUTS is very consistent, uh, both internally and externally. The motivation um, for NUTS was basically my frustration with what tools were available for users that, you know, users are left very vulnerable. They have an inadequate set of tools. They don't interoperate, they're expensive and they're hard to use. I mean, think about it. How many people actually really secure themselves properly on a daily basis? Um, almost nobody. Even if you're the most paranoid person, you have to be constantly vigilant about doing stuff right. Um, one of the oldest constructs that we have, the file, it needs a change. It needs to change significantly and for the better. And we have reached a hardware inflection point where computing power and storage capacity, uh, we've reached an inflection point. And obviously we've reached that inflection point with computational and signal gathering technology about 10, 12 years ago when the machine learning and AI fields started booming why not data privacy and management? Uh, so we gotta, we gotta kind of pay attention to that. In closing, I feel that the public deserves the best that we can offer as technologists. And we ourselves as creators and designers of technology, we have to demand more from it. Um, first of all, by questioning age-old assumptions and conventions. In, in lieu of, um, you know, new technology is moving so fast that the limitations of what we used to have uh, can be thought out in completely new ways. Um, and those constraints may no longer even matter anymore. The other thing is, um, you know, let's use our imagination for a better digital world, meaning um, I've seen many, many papers and approaches and thought experiments where we're trying to, you know, save binary data and DNA and organic compounds and basically forcing Mother Nature to do computing in the way we know how to do it in silicon. Well, here what we're trying to do is maybe we should take lessons from Mother Nature and not the other way around. And maybe nature already knows how to do a lot of this stuff. And all we need to do is really just open our eyes and ask the right questions. So in effect, 
nuts is all about the data and hopefully that kind of explains what we mean by data is the endpoint by using a nut and therefore treating it like an endpoint. Thank you very much. Thank you, Yoon. That was really good. I, uh, it was very clear and it looks like a lot of good information. We, um, the way we're gonna handle the question and answer like we, we've done before is, is we try to keep track of the questions for you and then we'll, uh, we'll read the questions uh, to you and you can see if we can get them answered. So I have uh, one question up right now. It says, if the, if the files time has come, is any work being made towards a NUTS file system? Well, that's a very good question. In my dreams, if we ever get there, um, we'd love to have a NUT operating system. So if you think about the, the vector of uh, attacks and the, um, you know, the attack surface, um, take a look at this. A NUT, we could transfer this in clear text in JSON Base64, and you can't open it without the proper keys. And if that's the primary um, conversation that computer systems have between NUT OSs, you're, you're, you're building in security at, at a very good level. And uh, it'll, it'll be intrinsically secure. And think about an operating system where an app application won't be allowed to run unless it comes in an authenticated NUT. Um, what that does is that, that it removes the entire viral vector that um, if, if the virus isn't smart enough to inject itself in a very sneaky way, but it just appears as an executable, if, it, if your system only operates on executable nuts, you're gonna, you're gonna create an entire um, shield from that particular uh, attack vector. So we would love to do that. And we would love to you know, entertain any kind of uh, projects that people have interest in trying to take our technology and embedding it at that level. Okay, that's great. If there are other questions, make sure you put them in the Q&A or, uh, or, or let us know you have a question. Right now, I don't see any more out there. Um, there I could, I could uh, maybe explain something about the ecosystem, which I didn't think um, I, didn't ha I won't have enough time to cover it. But okay. in terms of replica replication and synchronization, our primary concept is that if nuts are identifiable with a nut ID and a system, a nut server, encounters two nuts that it could open with the same nut ID, guess what? If each nut contains the revision history, we could now create um, a merge synchronized single version. And that's how we do replication and synchronization in an eventual consistency mode. So hopefully that, that kind of clarifies the kind of glossing over of the ecosystem and how it does replication and synchronization. All right. Um, Guan, did you have a question? I see your hand was raised. I know this is a lot of information and most people that I talk to, they rarely have seen this kind of approach layered in this fashion. So 
it's a it's a it's a lot of information that's 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 what i've seen so far okay oh, i see something in the chat oh yes it just it just popped up uh he's asking is zero knowledge proof very useful for this approach well i mean you got to consider what is zero knowledge proof um if zero knowledge proof is you holding a secret processing something to prove that you hold that secret not supports that uh intrinsically because as soon as you you've established secrets that you both parties know that you have but they're not revealed to each other they could be stored in a nut one of our biggest problems that we have in um in security is where do you keep all of these secrets and right now the most popular password managers let's say they would use um, encrypted tables, right? Encrypted relational tables. Um, we're trying to, we're doing this on an individual basis. So think about the notebook where every single password, every single address entry is floating around in individual nuts. They're all being synchronized with your own machines within your own home Wi-Fi. No other system does that. That means that I have um, recoverability to the last updated nut. And even your best enterprise systems, unless they're extraordinarily intricate, won't even give you that. And the only thing that maybe gives you that is everybody uses a centralized cloud storage. So it's a very different way of looking at data and how you preserve data. And why we say that, you know, think about the, the implications of what I just told you with replication and the notebook is as soon as you add a second machine to your nut ecosystem at home, so let's say between your desktop and your laptop, and you got all these like nuts synchronizing all the time. So I just changed the uh, Jerry Hans address entry and it gets updated to my desktop. Guess what? If I clicked on a bad link and I start getting ransomware on my laptop and it starts encrypting everything, my nut server isn't a vector for transmitting that ransomware to my desktop, and I could just shut my laptop down, my desktop is still operational. And I could start using my desktop to recover once I reinitialize my laptop with a, with a fresh copy of the operating system. So in this way, we believe that we're gonna deliver to the common user, average person, unbelievable ransomware protection that they've never been able to access before and in a private way, that none of this is stored in a central server, central cloud. Um, it'll be using your own um, resources as best as possible. Okay, are there any other, any other questions out there that we can uh, answer? We have a few minutes on our, uh, our time, so we're, we're happy to take questions if they're out there. I, I, like I said, I know that this is a lot of stuff and mm -hmm. it's, it comes from a very different direction from your conventional approaches. And I believe that's, that's why, um, and, and for people that I've explained this to before, um, it makes a lot of intuitive sense once you start thinking about how our bodies actually work. And um, you know, there's a lot to learn from it. And that's what we did was, not to replicate, you know, not, we don't want to create the program of life um, with nuts. What we wanted to do was DNA, 
we know it works. We don't have to prove it. So can it teach us anything? And what did it teach us? And if it taught us something, can we use those principles to uh, enact a better data model and get better data management system? And this is, you know, this is an interpretation of it. And I think it's, um, it's definitely a, a different thing on the radar and, uh, you know, gives you a lot of, lot of things to think about. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can do a very generic question. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, in my research, uh, I, I've done some research on uh, situations in which developers do mistakes. So the system in itself could be secure or the API could be secure, but but developers do not use it correctly. Uh, so do you, do, you, do you see that these... Uh, technology you're proposing can help uh, developers not to do security mistakes because uh, yeah because I think that's that's a big uh, problem in uh, in security that um, well absolutely do. I think there's two areas that we tackle that and obviously when you when you make it a very general question of developers uh, not making mistakes, there's all sorts of mistakes they can make. Yeah. But the two aspects that we attack very well is when you look at transmutations and the transmutation audit record, um, you saw that it's very simple and you only have to do half the work, meaning that yeah. um, there's a lot less um, opportunity for errors to creep in, for, for weaknesses to creep in. And by doing that, you only do half the work, the other half is guaranteed, and we don't even require you to know the proper way to generate the right keys. So, you know, when, when you ever first try to do run one of these AES or RSA uh, ciphers, you're like, what? They, they don't even tell you how to create the right keys. You have to figure that out yourself and what size it is and then write what mode it is. Well, transmutations just gives it to you. If you don't put any keys into the um, call, it'll out, out pop a key stack that you basically have to fold again and, and you, you, you wrap that up with one key. You know, the one RSA key you know, with, the, with the public key or the one symmetric key that you have a, as a secret. So um, that's one layer that we try to help the applied cryptographer to uh, implement better systems. And also you could have the best experts in your organization write the best TARs, right? So you could, you could write, hey, give me five transmutation audit records for different purposes. We'll name them this way. And then that's our library and people will use it, right? And if there's a special um, sensitive material that requires AES to be done 10 times over in one TAR, you just do it. No, not a problem, right? That's a, it take a look at how long it took to go from single DES to triple DES. It's a, you know, you have to change entire systems, entire libraries. Here, you just throw it into the tar and you're done, right? You do AES 10 times, 20 times, doesn't really matter. Second level is that with nuts and the nut book, we could actually, uh, if I'm a project manager and I control my developers access to uh, research or development um, database systems, let's say uh, you know, an Oracle database, 
Um, in their code, they don't even have to know what server it is, what database it is, what credentials they have to use. I could actually send them Nutbook access nuts that contain that information specifically for each individual developer. And what they do is in their code, they read that nut, access the Nutbook, read the nut, get the credentials, and it automatically logs in. Meaning that all of those attack vectors where you have leakage of code and, and credentials in GitHub, they're gone, right? You don't have hardwired things. And then moving from development to QA to production, we don't change the application interface at all. It's a change of nut to a particular user. And I know that that user is the only one who could do that because when I share it with them, they have to have the keys to open that credential. And so we're, we're attacking security in that way and that making it very modular, very consistent, and then not revealing credentials whenever possible by embedding them in nuts. And therefore, when you, when you start using the nutbook, you could put in any kind of secret that you want, even the ones that we didn't anticipate because what is the payload in a nut? It's a JSON structure. So it could be anything, meaning that it's, it's not constrained by how we structured and anticipated a relational table that's rectangular in nature. We don't have to do that. It's just whatever you need to store, you store it and it's secret. And now you could pass it around to different people. So you know, easier handling of secrets, more consistency. And if you stick it into a nut, there's built-in persistence across several systems if you if that's how your ecosystem is set up so hopefully that kind of answers some of your questions but yeah it's not a solve all for everything sure okay so do we have other questions i guess i don't see any at this time okay okay Well, great. Well, I, I want to express my thanks to the folks at Nuts Technology. We, uh, we're glad that you uh, contacted us and asked to uh, be a part of, the, uh, of our seminar series. It's been great. Uh, in a few days, you'll be uh, immortalized on our website uh, as this yep. gets placed out there. So again, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come and chat with us today, both to the class and to those of the general public, but also those who uh, will download and, and view this uh, this presentation because we do get a lot of hits on these every week. So, okay, so and thank you so much. Yes, thank you for inviting, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to entertain or educate you. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Okay. Thanks all. Bye. Okay. Bye.